Now we turn to the Gospel of Matthew. So let us prepare our hearts and minds to hear this word of Scripture. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning is about borders and boundaries, compassion and transformation. At first glance, it appears to be about Jesus' transformation. A foreigner from the other side of the border makes an unfair request of Jesus He initially ignores the request, then tells her why it is an unfair request, and then he grants her request. This appears to be a transformation, but I believe that Jesus was modeling for his disciples and for us an appreciation for the wideness of God's mercy. The wideness of God's mercy at the borders and the boundaries. And before I continue, I think I'm going to try this other microphone because I'm some feedback that's kind of annoying. <clears throat> Is that better? Okay. And it's at borders and boundaries that real transformation always seems to take place. It is a transformation from narrow traditions and rules to a broader perspective governed by compassion. It is a transformation from exclusion to inclusion. There are many stories in our present time about such matters, but one from the August 8, 2017 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association caught my attention. It is titled, Prisoner of My Preconceptions. The physician writer, Dr. Jason Chertoff, speaks about being on duty in his medical intensive care unit when he learns that a prisoner from the regional correctional institution was being brought to the hospital with sepsis, a severe blood infection. He finds himself muttering about the annoyance of patients from the prison. 
They often do poorly. He assumes that prisoners are usually bad people who have wantonly broken the law. They have violated the rules of society. As these thoughts are going through his head, the prisoner is wheeled in. He is heavily shackled with cuffs on his wrists and ankles, though he is heavily sedated and intubated on a ventilator. He arrives with a diagnosis of lymphoma, also a malodorous decaying leg infection, and a severe pneumonia with a large accumulation of infected fluid in his left lung. The sepsis protocol is initiated, and the physician asks an intern to get consent for a chest tube to drain the lung fluid. Dr. Chertoff suspects that the man has no family and that the intern will come up empty-handed. But much to his surprise, the intern soon returns with consent from the man's wife. The prisoner has a wife and three children and has been in regular contact with them. As Dr. Chertoff prepares to insert the chest tube, he reflects, quote, I was suddenly jolted by compassion as I gazed into his lifeless eyes. I cannot attribute this emotional reaction to any specific event other than a fortunate revelation. To me, he was suddenly no longer a prisoner. He was a human being who had a wife and children who cared for him. Indeed, he likely made unsound decisions in the past, but right at that moment, he did not resemble a convict. Instead, a vulnerable person who is gravely ill. It is rare to have such an indelible emotional connection, he writes, with a complete stranger, especially one whom my past prejudices would have precluded, unquote. Rare indeed to break through prejudices and see the other, whom one may despise or at the very least consider unworthy of one's time and attention, to see that person as a human being and respond to the person's need with compassion. The story that I read strikes a resonance for me with the story we read in Matthew. Like the prisoner on the border of good and evil, holy and demonic, acceptable and unacceptable, the Canaanite woman and her daughter also come from a similar border. This one was imposed by a culture which set a boundary around Canaanites, the historic enemies of Israel. The God of Israel had given their land to the Israelites. The Canaanites were forced out to the coastlands in the region of Tyre and Sidon and modern-day Lebanon. This woman from outside the boundaries and at the borders of demonic and holy confronts Jesus. This Jesus, whom Professor Tom Long describes as, quote, the Jew who stands at the culmination of all of Israel's history, unquote. 
and she confronts Jesus about her demon-possessed daughter's need for healing. Jesus knows his disciples are watching him and wondering what he will do. Canaanites were rejected people at the border and outside the boundary. Shouldn't all Canaanites be avoided? Before we examine this woman's confrontation with Jesus, we should consider the biblical context of this story. In the previous chapter in Matthew, chapter 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, as well as women and children. Then that evening, Peter sinks during his attempt to walk on the water to Jesus. And Jesus points out his little faith. And then just prior to the story of the Canaanite woman, the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem to complain that he is destroying their traditions. Jesus counters by noting their breaking of the commandments and their duplicity. He then departs and goes away into the district of Tyre and Sidon, a coastal region inhabited by Gentiles, the dispossessed Canaanites. Why does Jesus go there? The storybook Bible suggests it was to get a rest. But what point is Jesus making? The Canaanite woman appears and starts shouting, actually shrieking when you examine the Greek word. She shrieks, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. So this Gentile woman outside the boundary of Israel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. If you look back at the end of chapter 14, you'll find that the disciples have only just recently recognized Jesus as Son of God. If we identify with anyone in this story, perhaps it should be with this woman. She is a Gentile like us. She recognizes Jesus' special relationship with God and she did not come to criticize him as the Jewish leaders did. She sees in Jesus a person who conveys the mercy, the compassion of God. Jesus' response to her is silence. Silence. If in your deepest despair about your life situation you wondered if God was listening to your plea for help, that is exactly how this woman must have felt. And then the disciples come to Jesus and urge him to send her away. Her shrieking unnerves them, though they don't rebuke her themselves. Perhaps they are awed by her recognition of Jesus as son of David in this one chance encounter. Jesus responds to the disciples and to the woman, quote, 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, unquote. Jesus is stating that he is the spiritual leader of the Jews with whom Gentiles have nothing in common. She needs to seek help from her own kind. This seems very harsh. Unless Jesus is testing her, which I would like to believe is the case. If it is a test, she passes. Instead of walking off in a huff, she kneels in a posture of worship and simply replies to Jesus, Lord, help me. We now expect that Jesus will grant her request. That's what he usually does when a person gets on their knees and begs for help. But no, he appears to insult her and further tests her trust in God's compassion. He says it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. The Greek even employs the diminutive, immature dogs. Now surely she'll give up on any notion that Jesus is a compassionate Messiah. But no, though insulted and seemingly rejected, nevertheless, she persisted. You may have heard that before. She accepts Jesus' claim that she is unworthy. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Or to express it another way, yes, Lord, my circumstances place me outside God's covenant with Israel, and I know that I should hate Jews, but I also know that you are the Lord, the Son of David, and your God is my God. I am on the border and outside the boundary, but I know that God's compassion includes me, and I will persist in my prayer for the healing that you can give me. And then Jesus responds, Woman, great is your faith. That is an amazing contrast to his statement just earlier about Peter's little faith. What should we take from this encounter? I'm struck by three elements. First, both the woman and her daughter are on the boundary and outside the border of what Jews like Jesus and his disciples would consider acceptable. The women are excluded because of their Canaanite identity. They're excluded by demon possession. They're excluded as women in a male-dominant society. Anyone who is located on the border or outside the boundary established by our society can identify with this Canaanite woman. She and her daughter are victims of circumstances that result in bias, prejudice, and exclusion. We can think of many persons who fall into this category. This morning on NPR, I learned about <clears throat> Ruby Sales. 
someone I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't heard about before. Ruby Sales was 17 years old when she marched in Selma to Montgomery. Shortly after that, she picketed an all-whites, a whites-only store. And this was after the Civil Rights Law of 1964, which made that illegal. So she was picketing to express her legal right, and the legal right of other non-whites to go to any store they wished. Well, she was arrested with those who were picketing with her, and she was finally released from jail six days later. And then she and some of her friends went to a store to get some soda, and she was confronted by a shotgun-wielding construction worker. The person near her was Jonathan Daniels. Jonathan Daniels was a white Episcopal divinity student, and he had been drawn to protest with all these folks about the injustice of racial bigotry. When the worker raised his shotgun to shoot Ruby, Jonathan pushed her aside and was killed instantly when he took the shot. Jonathan Daniels was recognized as a saint by the Episcopal Church. I'm also struck in the story that we've been thinking about, that we and the disciples are easily prisoners of our preconceptions. Listen to what the disciples were saying. She's not one of us. She doesn't have our beliefs. She should be sent away. We are all guilty of preconceptions about the value of certain others in the eyes of God. In the latest Christian century, Craig Barnes tells about the turmoil that arose when he invited the Reverend Tim Keller, a Presbyterian church in America pastor, to receive an award for his ministry and to speak at Princeton Theological Seminary. This was just recently. There were objections from some students because the PCA does not ordain women or LGBTQ individuals. Dr. Barnes kept emphasizing to the students and other critics that the Princeton Theological Seminary community is centered in Christ. We all belong to him. If we are clear about that, we don't have to worry about boundaries because the center will always hold. Ultimately, the award for Reverend Keller was rescinded, although he did speak on campus without any demonstrations. And finally, I am struck in reading this scripture. The great faith is measured by confidence that God's mercy includes all persons, 
beyond any human borders and boundaries. With Christ at the center, as Craig Barnes noted, boundaries become irrelevant. And this great faith is characterized by persistence, persistence especially in prayer, like the Canaanite woman who would not give up her prayer to Jesus and who never doubted the validity of her claim to God's mercy. We live in dark times, but we can find hope in the promise of transformation by the grace of God when borders and boundaries become irrelevant. All are embraced by God's mercy. Great faith is all about trusting in God's acceptance and God's compassion. Living that faith is about persistence in prayer to the God who will not abandon us. Tomorrow we experience a total eclipse of the sun. To varying degrees and in various locations, our sunlit world will become dark. A short time later, light will appear once again. This is a metaphor for life. When the world becomes dark, the children of light, that's us, ignore borders and boundaries to be reflections of God's love. And light bursts forth to reassure us, as Isaiah did in the passage we read, that God is gathering in all the outcasts, and God's compassion for all God's children will ultimately prevail. I leave you and myself with this challenge, to be the children of light, and to stand up against any behavior or social policy that conveys contempt for the humanity of any person. That is ultimately what Jesus modeled for his disciples. Amen. <laughs>